Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Barbie. Wait, what? Sorry, start over. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Sorry about that. I've just been I've just been so stuck in the Barbie verse lately that I forgot who I was for a moment there. I am so excited to get into today's episode. Finally, thank you so much for everyone who waited so patiently for me to get this episode up. That Patreon episode, Wizard of Oz, really ended up taking a long time. If you can imagine, I had a lot to say about the wonderful Wizard of Oz. What a shocker. And since I am mentioning the Wizard of Oz and the Angry Feminist Book Club, I would definitely recommend if you were to listen to one episode from the book club series right now, make it the most recent one. Listen to this episode. I put so much work into it. I think it's really well done. I think it's funny and it's something that I have so much joy talking about. So I feel like that's why it just kind of like the whole vibe was just good times, right? And if you want to fully join the Angry Feminist Book Club, you can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or go to the link in the show notes here and you can join for $5 a month. But if you want a little bit of extra, extra stuff, you can join the Feminist Faves level at $8 a month where you get all of the Angry Feminist Book Club stuff, but you also get these episodes early for the most part, except for this week. Sorry, everybody. But I have been getting them up very early for the most part, which I'm happy about. And you'll also just get like maybe some bonus stuff every now and again, things that I want to talk about. And it's another way for you to just continue to support the show. Make sure I can continue to keep this ball rolling and keep it going. I am so thankful to all of my patrons so far. It's been such a great time. And before I get into this very fun episode, I do have a very, very, very special announcement that I have been dying to tell you all about for the last six months. And I'm so glad that I can finally share this with the world. My dear, dear friend, who I've spoken of many times on this podcast, India Oxenberg, is releasing a new podcast, which will be called Still Learning, kind of a continuation from her book. And she had asked me to be her co-producer. And you're also going to hear me every once in a while in the show during the interviews. And it's just been such an amazing experience, truly, not just because I'm like, oh, great, I get to work on another show and this is really fun, but it's really been a transformative, healing, moving, loving experience for me. And I'm so happy that this project has brought me closer to India, who has truly become just such an important person in my life. And I am so amazed by her strength and her courage and her bravery and all of all of that stuff that sounds like bullshit but 
she truly is just such an amazing person. And in this show, we're going to talk to some experts that she worked with when leaving the cult, experts she's worked with since. We're also going to talk to other survivors about their healing journeys, whether it be from cults and high control groups or from other sorts of relationships and groups and so on. I am so excited to finally share this show with all of you, and I will be letting you know on the exact release date very soon, but since India didn't add that yet to the announcement, I'm like, I guess I won't tell you the exact date it's coming, but it's coming really, really soon, like sooner than you think. So definitely go to our Instagram at Still Learning the Podcast and follow us there because we're going to be posting about when all of the new episodes are coming up and things like that. And when it's available for you to subscribe, I'll let you know. I can't wait for you all to come on this new journey with me. Okay, enough about that. Let's get into Barbie. In March of 1959, when little Liz Kyer, my mom, was only eight years old, a new doll called Barbie launched onto the American toy market. This 11 and a half inch plastic doll is leggy, wearing a black and white striped swimsuit and pouty red lips. She was the first mass produced doll in the US with adult features. Her full name is Barbara Millicent Roberts, and she was the brainchild of a woman named Ruth Handler, who created the doll along with her husband, Elliot. Elliot and Ruth were high school sweethearts before they married in 1938. Then they moved from Colorado to Los Angeles because Ruth had a dream of working in the film industry. Her husband, Elliot, had a hobby of building furniture, and he began to make furniture out of two new types of plastic, which were lucite and plexiglass. Ruth thought this would make a great idea for a business, so the couple started their own furniture company, with Ruth running sales and helping him land some really lucrative contracts. Soon, the couple went into business with a man named Harold Matt, they called him Matt, Matson in 1945. Elliot and Matt combined their two names, creating a new business name, Mattel. According to the men, they just couldn't find a way to get Ruth's name in there, too. Couldn't it have been Mattelluth? No? That doesn't sound good. That doesn't roll off the tongue. Mattel's furniture sales began to decline at the onset of World War II. So the company began to manufacture toy furniture. You know, you can make smaller products. It takes less waste, less supplies, things like that. And apparently they tapped into a very needed market because just like that, business was booming again. And they decided to make Mattel a toy company. So like I mentioned in the American Girl episode, there was a need for dolls that grew up with the children, as most of the popular dolls at this time were baby dolls. And it's interesting when we think about this, because the reason that baby dolls were so prevalent in America for young girls at the time was because we were starting to groom them at a very young age that their role in society was to grow up to be a wife and a mother. So we were literally teaching babies how to take care of babies. You wonder why this maternal instinct is in women, it's because it's been groomed into us fuckers. (laughs) Ruth was inspired by a German doll called Build Lily, so of course I had to go down the Build Lily rabbit hole and research her. This Lily doll was from a comic strip created by Reinhard Butin? Butin? I'm not gonna be good with German names, I'm sorry. In a newspaper that was simply just called Build. It was a tabloid newspaper for the heavily conservative and nationalist readers, and it contained a mix of gossip, inflammatory language, and sensationalism. Fun. 
This Reinhard guy drew a buxom figure with a blonde ponytail. And in the first comic, which was released June 24th of 1952, Bill Lilly is asking a fortune teller for the address and telephone number of a tall, dark, and handsome man. Much of Germany fell in love with this blonde character, but mostly the men. Eventually, women would come around, though, because Lily was so comfortable in her femininity. She was always seen wearing the most fashionable and somewhat risque clothes, often tight-fitting, showing lots of skin. Lily's female friends and co-workers were jealous of her because, of course they were. Women are always jealous of each other and their looks. But it seldom seemed that Lily was trying to flaunt her looks, unless, of course, she was trying to charm a rich man. Then she definitely knew what she was doing. In an article I read entitled The Stolen Legacy of Build Lily, they say the drawback to the character was that she saw men as objects and never as people. She was more interested in their looks and money than anything else. She was also never seen with the same boyfriend twice. Now, I would have to argue the writer of this article in saying that this is a write-out negative character trait in Lily, and here's why. Women in the 1950s and honestly, since the beginning of time and still to this day, have been a victim of this Madonna whore complex. We wish to see women as either purely saintly or or sinners, you know? But here's Lily wearing tight, skimpy clothes and going up to men to get what she wants, much like a man may present himself to be better off, more wealthy, or even kinder than he actually is to get a woman into bed. Lily's just playing the man's game. And I really like that this type of character was on display in the 1950s because I don't think the public wanted to view women this way, and it was definitely unusual to have a protagonist of a story behave in this way. Like I said, eventually female readers were drawn in. In one infamous strip, a police officer threatens to arrest Lily because she's wearing a bikini, something that was illegal in most places outside of a beach in most parts of the world. Lily's response Oh, and in your opinion, what part should I take off? I like her, but I also don't see how this would go over well in a conservative German newspaper. (laughs) Bill Lilly's popularity grew, and Bill decided to merchandise their new star. A designer by the name of Max Weisbrot designed a 12-inch plastic doll with multiple parts so they could be moved and manipulated. Her head turned separately from her body and a special doll wig was glued onto a scalp, which was then attached to the head by a screw on the inside of the doll's head. Her legs were attached at the hip, so when she sat down, her legs stayed together. Of course, that's very important. We wouldn't want to have our little Lily doll sitting down and exposing a lack of genitalia on a plastic doll. I don't know. Weird, but I guess it's lifelike. The Lily doll was released just one year after her debut in the comic strip in 1953, and suddenly they were being sold all over the place in plastic tubes with tiny doll-sized copies of recent issues of Build. Lily was the world's first mass-marketed plastic fashion doll, and she would also become the first doll to be available in a variety of sizes. Another trend that Lily popularized was offering the same doll, but with different outfits. Newspaper ads encouraged men to buy the dolls for their wives and girlfriends, which seems a little odd, but it seems like adult women were down to play with the dolls. Some women even used her as inspiration to try out new fashion trends. Of course, the doll did become a hit with the kids too, and other toy companies began to take notice. Soon, there were knockoffs of Lily in Italy, Scandinavia, England, and she was also sold in the United States, but marketed briefly just to little girls. 
1956, Ruth Handler took a vacation with her husband and her children to Germany. There, she noticed this fashionable doll and purchased a few for herself. She had already been thinking about how she wanted to make a 3D version of the paper dolls that her daughter Barbara loved to play with. Ruth once said, I discovered something very important. They were using these dolls to project their dreams of their own futures as adult women. Wouldn't it be great if we could take that play pattern and three-dimensionalize it? When Ruth got home, she began working on prototype sketches. She hired designer Jack Ryan to help, and the doll was given a new name. In 1958, she was awarded the copyright and trademark for the name Barbie, which was then sent to Random House to be used on tie-in books for a new project. They wanted to write books like Barbie's Secret, which was written in 1958 and would eventually be published in 1964. It doesn't sound like the Barbie books at the time ever really took off. Then, on March 9, 1959, at the American International Toy Fair, an 11 and a half inch made of vinyl instead of plastic with rooted, not glued on hair, styled with curly bangs, painted fingernails, toenails, legs that stayed closed when she sat, and a head on a swivel in a black and white striped one-piece bathing suit was debuted. Barbie also came with a pair of shoes and earrings, and you could purchase her in either blonde or brunette. Her name was Barbie but she looked a hell of a lot like Build Lily. Mattel then began a hostile takeover of the Build Lily copyrights, ousting all of the original creators from their own product. By 1961, Build Lily was dead. She no longer appeared in any comics, and most of her cartoons and even the movie they made about her has been largely suppressed. Today, Build Lily is sometimes referred to as the grandmother of Barbie. Ouch. However, eventually the legal system did get involved. They didn't just let Ruth and Elliot walk all over them. Lewis Mark and company sued Mattel in March of 1961, claiming that after licensing Lily, Mattel had, quote, infringed on Griner and Hauser's patent for Bill Lily's hip joint, and also claimed that the Barbie was a direct takeoff and copy of Bill Lily. The company additionally claimed that Mattel falsely and misleadingly represented itself as having originated the design. Mattel eventually countersued and the case was settled out of court in 1963. In 1964, Mattel bought Griner and Hauser's copyright and patent rights for the Build Lily doll for $21,600. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Barbie doll was marketed as a teenage fashion model, and all of her clothes were created by a Mattel fashion designer by the name of Charlotte Johnson. Wouldn't you love that job? Oh, I just create Barbie outfits, design them, like, amazing. But Charlotte did not make these mass-produced outfits, of course. Instead, the first dolls were manufactured in Japan, with the clothing being hand-stitched by Japanese home workers. Wow. That just seems really gross and fucked up to me. The name Barbie was chosen, as that was the name she called her daughter Barbara. She also had a son, Kenneth, or Ken. Her daughter Barbara, though, was not too pleased that her mother named the dolls after her, as she was 18 years old by the time the doll was released, and she saw it as kind of odd. She must have also felt like it was a bit of an invasion on her privacy and anonymity. She once said, when people come up to me and say, oh, you're the real Barbie, I couldn't understand it because that's just a name that was given to the doll. But a lot of people thought that they modeled it after me and they made it look like me. And that was supposed to be it. That's not true. Kenneth also had some issues with how the doll changed his identity. He said to the LA Times in 1989, Kendall is Malibu. He goes to the beach and surfs. He is all these perfect American things. Meanwhile, Kenneth described himself as a real nerd who played piano and went to the movies with subtitles in high school. I hear you there, pal. No hearing pun intended. When Kenneth grew up, he got married to Susie Handler and began having children. Grandma Ruth Handler took inspiration from her grandchildren, naming Barbie's little sister Stacy after their daughter. The Todd and Cheryl dolls were also named after their grandchildren. The first TV ad for Barbie, broadcast the same year as the doll came out, had a woman singing from the point of view of a young girl, promising that one day she'll be just like Barbie. And this ad must have done wonders because 350,000 Barbie dolls were sold within the first year on the market. But let's talk about why that was. Barbie was a product of post-war consumerism. Wartime production had helped pull the United States economy out of a depression, and from the late 40s onward, young adults saw a remarkable rise in their spending power. And not only that, it was seen as patriotic to spend your money on things. You gotta love that capitalism. Also, jobs were plentiful, wages were higher, and they were eager to spend. Maybe this is why our parents and grandparents always refer to this time period as the good old days. Also, couples were getting married and making babies at unprecedented rates, hence the term baby boom. Also, new and expanded expanded federal programs also allowed many more families to purchase homes, often in rapidly expanding suburbs. It was also a time of modernization, and with their money, families were starting to get new forms of technology, like television sets, new cars, toasters, vacuums, and other machinery that was scantily available in years past. 
And in many senses, Barbie reflected all of those things. Shortly after the release of the dolls, Mattel began creating more accessories for Barbie, like a telephone, vinyl records, magazines, and then in 1962, they made Barbie's dream house, further promoting material ideals. Barbie started to become so popular that Ruth decided to give Barbie some friends. First off, Ruth decided that Barbie needed a boyfriend, and thus, Ken was created. Barbie's best friend Midge came to the shelves in 1963 as Barbie's best friend and little sister Skipper in 1964. But let's talk about Midge. Oh, Midge. I feel like she has been a very popular topic of conversation in the Barbieverse these days. Midge was designed with a fuller, gentler face with freckles, although her body proportions were the same as Barbie's. It's just... I don't know how to explain this because Midge is beautiful in her own way. So I don't want to be like, why did they make this doll like this? But they did make her look just not quite as cool as Barbie, if that makes sense. I've been seeing a lot of people online talking about Midge lately saying like they really expected us to believe that this was Barbie's best friend. She was like the frumpy friend or whatever, which is funny because that's how I always felt. I was always best friends with like the gorgeous blonde and I was like the frumpy brunette friend and I always fell in love with the boys that were in love with the blondes and oh, it was the worst. But anyways, I digress. Midge just had a different vibe. And in 1964, Midge was then given a boyfriend by the name of Alan. Because we all know no girl can go on without a man in her life. And the two even got married in 1991. The year after they married in 1992, a picture of the couple holding twin babies was shown in a pamphlet, but the dolls were never produced. I guess this was just to announce to the world that they're parents now? They did eventually give Midge and Alan kids, though, in 2003. This was known as the Happy Family Line, and Midge was sold as pregnant with a baby that they would name Nikki. You got that right. There was a pregnant Barbie with a magnetic, removable womb in which you would see a baby inside of her. This seems traumatizing. Of course, there was tons of controversy with this doll, as many complained that it promoted teen pregnancy, although by looking at this doll, it actually seems like an effective method of birth control. Yikes. People also complained that the pregnant Midge didn't have a wedding ring on because goddess forbid she have a bastard baby, so they added a wedding band to the doll's finger. This was the 90s. What are people's problems? Customers also got upset when the pregnant Midge doll was sold without Alan. Fuck the patriarchy, man. Later, around Nikki's first birthday, Midge would become pregnant again to a baby who was never named. Barbie quickly became an important American cultural icon and the toy company began to notice the need for more diversity in their dolls. In 1967, Francie, the first black Barbie, was released. Now, Francie, the doll's full name, was Colored Francie. And that is so gross. And the thing is, it's not like they even changed the mold of this doll to represent what young black women looked like. This was essentially just a Barbie doll with darker skin and no other physical changes to make it look more accurate to what black women actually look like. 
New Barbies would often come out with some big event that was happening in the country. Like in 1968, the same year that the Fair Housing Act was passed, Mattel introduced Christy, another black doll, wearing a mod swimsuit, which they actually called Talking Christy. And she did, in fact, talk. Christy was part of a group of talking dolls that were released. And when you pulled the string on her back, she said, Hi, I'm Christy. And let's go shopping with Barbie. Christy, however, did not come with her own set of clothes, and you were expected to use Barbie's clothes on Christy. The only difference between Francie and Christy was that Christy was given slightly different facial features to resemble that of an actual black woman. Then, in 1968, another black doll went on the market, this one named Julia, based on a black character from a TV sitcom called Julia, which came out in 1968. I had never heard of this show, so I went right to Google, and I discovered that this show was the first weekly series in the United States to star a black woman in a non-stereotypical role. The star was Dionne Carroll, and the show ran for 86 episodes. And it was a story of a widowed single mother who was a nurse in a doctor's office for a large aerospace company, which is so 1960s. All of these dolls were released as Barbie's friends, as a way to create a more racially diverse Barbie world. But most likely, the white girls bought the white Barbies and the black girls would buy Christy. There was most likely very little interracial gameplay in many American households in the 1960s. So I don't know how well their plan of diversity really panned out. Starting in the 1980s, Mattel began to listen to their customers and focus even more on diversity in their line and introduced the Dolls of the World Collection, a series of dolls that showcased different cultures and countries from around the world. They released dolls from Mexico and Japan, and in years to come, they expanded to countries like India, Kenya, and others. The first Latina Barbie was released in 1988, and she was named Teresa. But I guess it was kind of a question mark around her for a while as to what her actual ethnicity was, because she could kind of look Italian or Latina, because there wasn't really any distinct differences that were made to this doll. It wasn't until 1999 that Mattel released Teresa's last name as Rivera that it was made clear of the ethnicity of this Barbie. In the 90s, Mattel finally created new molds to better represent the look of black women in their dolls. While we're already kind of on this topic, let's go further into Barbie and unobtainable beauty standards. Today, the Barbie line includes 35 different skin tones, 97 hairstyles, and 9 body types, with Mattel's goal being for all children to see themselves in Barbie and to play with dolls that look different than themselves. But in the 1970s, many second wave feminists had a real issue with Barbie and some of the messages she sent to young girls. At the 1970 Women's Strike for Equality, some marchers chanted, I am not a Barbie doll. From the jump, young women began comparing themselves to the pale-skinned, small-waisted, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Barbie. Barbie was a model for them to play and explore who they would be as adults, but it also may have occurred to some young girls that Barbie was that successful, popular, and loved because of how she looked. That was particularly true of girl, with girls of color. A young white girl may still see potential in making herself like Barbie one day, but little black girls knew they could never be Barbie. To them, Barbie was a reminder that they were different and did not fit into the mainstream image of a typical American girl. 
Today, the company does seem like it's trying to be more diverse than ever, devoting themselves to exploring different kinds of dolls. But that wasn't always the case. At first, they started creating dolls with some different skin tones and hair textures and names. And the body shapes were slightly altered, but they had to keep proportions the same so you wouldn't have to buy all new clothes for the doll. They did another upgrade to their black dolls in 2009 with the Sew in Style dolls, but the release had mixed reactions. Some praised them for a more diverse line, but others still thought that the doll was promoting an unrealistic body image with long legs, a small waist, and large breasts. Others pointed out that the doll with straight hair could be a bad influence for young black girls, as this style is seen as more beautiful than natural or short curly hair. In 2003, Mattel released a Barbie doll with Down syndrome, and within the past few years, they have begun focusing on creating more diverse dolls with different types of physical traits. Recently, they've released Barbies with hearing aids, a prosthetic limb, and a wheelchair. However, the first Barbie with a wheelchair that was released in 1997 didn't go off so well. One high school student with cerebral palsy noted that the doll in the wheelchair wouldn't fit into the elevator at Barbie's dream house. Thankfully, Mattel listened to this complaint, and the company then made an announcement that they would redesign the dream house to better accommodate wheelchairs. Why can't the world be a bit more like this? It was in 2015 that they finally brought out a broader variety of body sizes. And it wasn't just Barbie that had a makeover. In 2017, Mattel introduced new body types for Ken and a range of diverse features. Mattel released 15 new Kens with three new body types, seven different skin tones, nine hairstyles, including cornrows and man buns, and an array of different fashions for them. Also by the 1970s, women could be more than wives, mothers, or fashion models, and they wanted the dolls to start setting an example for young girls of the possibilities of their future. Women wanted to see their dolls reflect the kind of lives they wanted to have. When Barbie first came out, the goal was for every little girl to want to be a wife and mother, and the toys we gave them reflected that. But Barbie has always been about keeping up with the times, and soon Barbie was given many different career options. In fact, in Barbie's lifetime, she has had over 250 different jobs or careers. She started out as a teen fashion model, then she went on to work in medicine, business, transportation, and even the military. In 1965, four years before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin planted the American flag on the moon, astronaut Barbie soared to space in a cute silver jumpsuit. What's amazing about this is that women couldn't slash wouldn't join NASA's astronaut corps until more than a decade later in 1978. But Barbie did it first. In 1985, women were wanting more of a place in the boardroom, so Barbie became a business executive, wearing a very stylish yet professional-looking pink blazer and skirt with a pink cravat-scarf situation, holding what looks like either a calculator or an iPhone. And since those didn't exist yet, I'm going to assume it's a calculator. And she could go day to night, as the doll came with a separate pink cocktail dress. Look at that, women really can do everything. Women can even run for office. In 1999, Barbie ran for president. This Barbie looks like she took a stroll through Hillary Clinton's closet and found the cutest skirt suit set that she could find and paired it with matching blue sheer tights and blue pumps. I'm hoping the reference with all the blue means that she was running as a Democratic candidate. She also came with campaign signs and stickers reading, Barbie for president. 
There were also some really strange careers that they chose for Barbie, such as a limited edition fashion trend forecaster and a cat burglar. Here are some of Barbie's other careers through the years. Actor, artist, babysitter, ballerina, barista, chef, dentist, doctor, farmer, florist, game show host, pet groomer, rapper, teacher, UNICEF ambassador, U.S. Air Force pilot, army officer, waitress, and yoga instructor. My favorite Barbie as a kid, of course, was the ice skating Barbie. She had this really cute turquoise outfit. She had, you know, her little ponytail and bangs and a little headband. But then she had this like plastic ring that went around her stomach and you could kind of like wind her up and then hold on to like the little handles on either side of that ring and she would like spin around like she was skating. And of course, she also came with a pair of turquoise figure skates. That doll was awesome. I also remember loving this Christmas limited edition doll that I had as a kid. It was like the only doll that I didn't play rough with because she was so pretty. And I remember she had the most gorgeous maroon velvet dress with gold applique on it. I was obsessed with that dress. There are also many celebrities that have been turned into Barbies. The first celebrity Barbie was released in 1967, and she was modeled after British fashion model Twiggy. Then there was a group of old Hollywood starlets like Marilyn Monroe, Lucille Ball, Elizabeth Taylor. Even some male celebs got the Ken treatment like Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley. Musicians like David Bowie and Elton John have been Kenified, as well as Beyonce, Katy Perry, and Nicki Minaj, of course. I also really like Goldie Hawn's doll because she's covered in tattoos. That doll was released in 2009. Barbie is also known to turn beloved characters into dolls, like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, for instance, as well as I Dream of Jeannie, Elle Woods, Princess Leia, and Sam from Bewitched. I also want to give an honorable mention to some of the strangest Barbies and Kens throughout history. So, without further ado... One of the weirdest Barbies to ever be released was a doll that came with a dog that could shit. The doll also came with a little pooper scooper and magnetic poops that could be picked up by Barbie. The doll also comes with dog food, which appears to just be the same little poop pellets. So you feed your dog the poo and then they poo it out again. I don't like it. Who thought this was a good idea? Eventually, the doll was recalled because of the magnetic pieces coming apart and being dangerous for children, and this was probably for the best. The other one is strange, but only because it seems so out there for Barbie, but I think this is my favorite doll of all time. Let's talk about Cockring Ken, real name, Earring Ken. Cockring Ken came out in 1993 after Ken was deemed uncool by customers. This doll was dressed in a lavender mesh shirt, a purple pleather vest, a circular necklace that is most certainly a cock ring, and an earring in his left ear. Gay activist and commentator Dan Savage said of the wardrobe choices, saying it seemed like Mattel designers had spent a weekend in L.A. or New York dashing from rave to rave, taking notes and Polaroids. It was actually Dan who first pointed out that Ken was wearing a cock ring around his neck in an article he wrote called Ken Comes Out. And just so you know, this was a fashion statement for gay men at the time, and I'm here for it. I think we should bring that back. Dan said in his article, 
Queer imagery has so permeated our culture that from rock stars, Axl Rose and his leather chaps, to toy designers, mainstream America isn't even aware when it's adopting queer fashions and more. A woman named Carol Lawson at the New York Times responded to the unveiling of this doll with a claim that Mattel was attempting to gender bend Ken, like that would be such a bad thing, by making him appeal to both boys and girls. Honey, I think all Barbies appealed to most girls and gays at this time. You just heightened that popularity. Donna Gibbs, director of media relations at the time, said, said that this look was not attempting to be controversial. She said, Ken's still a clean-cut guy, but he's just a little more contemporary. Men are wearing earrings today. It's become a mainstream phenomenon. So Ken should have an earring. Why not? She also noted, Everybody loves Barbie, and we're pleased that gay men are finding something to enjoy in our products as well. The doll was eventually discontinued, but most likely just because they all were. Constantly new Barbies were coming out and things like that. There have been some claims that, you know, Dan Savage's article made them pull it from the shelves, but I couldn't really find any evidence that that's true. I guess that that's been kind of said in a lot of different articles and stuff throughout time, but... I'm reading now, maybe we've discovered that, no, they're, they're, it just kind of came off the shelves. All right, now that we've talked about Barbie dolls, a bit of the history, what they've meant to American culture, I want to talk about why you're all here listening to this episode today. I want to talk about representation in the Barbie movie. Now, this is going to be a little bit vague and super spoiler-free because I haven't actually seen the movie yet. Everyone in my life is, like, mad at me that I haven't seen it, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I have two podcasts, multiple nanny jobs, and a personal life. I'm fucking doing my best, but Max and I are going to try to see the movie on Thursday, and that's why I want to do another episode talking more about the movie. What I think I want to do is set up for that episode now. So the casting directors for this movie were Lucy Bevan and Allison Jones, and they really did a commendable job trying to ensure as much diversity as possible in this movie. Simu Liu, who plays one of the Kens, told a reporter that playing Ken meant being accepted into Western beauty ideals. He said, Barbie to me represented an idea of America. I came over from China to Canada when I was four and a half years old and very much felt like an outsider to the culture and society. Barbie felt like this quintessentially American doll with a quintessentially American life, with the cabriolet and the idealized version of what life would be. I don't think I would have believed myself if I'd have told me 10 years ago that I would play Ken. I would say Ken doesn't look like me, you know? I think it really speaks to Greta and her vision for what the Kens of Barbie land look like. Through her and this amazing world she created, I got to embody this character, and hopefully kids growing up will have a very diverse definition of what Ken and Barbie look like. Issa Rae also spoke out about her love of representation in the film, saying, People want to see themselves reflected in the dolls they play with, and I think Mattel has done a great job of addressing so many of the different types of people who exist in the world. America Ferreira has been very outspoken about how much this role has meant to her. She said in an interview, I didn't really have a connection to Barbie. While as a child, maybe I wasn't conscious of exactly why, I suspect it had a lot to do with not feeling seen and represented in that world. I feel like after listening to her love of this film and her role in it, not having to play a stereotypical Latina character, but just 
a woman existing in the world filled with joy and curiosity and success. And that was something that was really meaningful to her. And she noted that, you know, a lot of times in stories that involve inclusivity and diversity, a lot of times we are talking about the hardships that people of color have gone through. And while that's very important, we need to constantly be reminding each other of our history and where we've come from in order to prevent a lot of the travesties that have happened throughout history. But I really love that she mentioned the point that it's just as important to experience joy in different races and ethnicity. Just like I feel like it's really important to portray trans joy, queer joy, and showing not just people from the community that they come from, but everybody, that everyone deserves happiness and fulfillment and a great life. Simu Lu also spoke about his hope that this movie will challenge gender norms and heteronormativity. There are at least three openly LGBTQ plus actors playing Barbies and Kens that we know of. I'm sure there is more than that. I feel like everybody's a little bit gay. Hari Neff, Scott Evans, who is Chris Evans' little brother, and Alexandra Ship, who actually shared one of my reels recently and responded to a DM. Hey, girl. Hari Neff plays Dr. Barbie in the film. As a trans woman playing a Barbie, Hari said, Barbies are Barbies. They're not human women. They're dolls. They don't have genitalia. She goes on saying, It's probably positive for Mattel to include me in this because we're trying to show all different kinds of Barbies. But that's not why I got the role. I got the role because I fit the role. To be honest, I don't look much different in the movie than the Barbies I had when I was a kid. I love that they didn't make her a trans Barbie or something and just, again, let her exist in this universe. For Scott Evans, this was a role of a lifetime, and he jumped on the bandwagon for all of the promotional stuff with a lot of enthusiasm. He even appeared on a Barbie float for the LA Pride Parade alongside his castmate Alexandra Ship. And Alexandra, she plays author Barbie. She said, I think that that's what Barbie represents, a state of being where we can do and be anything. We can dress however we want to dress. I could win a Nobel Prize for being a writer and still be in hot pink six-inch heels and a silk miniskirt. What we look like does not define who we are. On the other hand, some people were a little bit disappointed that it wasn't as diverse as they were led to believe. In an article from Mamamia.com, an Australian website, they wrote... There are definitely elements of diversity in the film, more than many major films that have come before it can claim. There's no denying the array of Barbies of different races, body types, personalities, gender identities, and sexual preferences puts it light years ahead of, well, most Hollywood blockbusters. But, they argue, the film still centered around the traditional image of Barbie as a tall, thin, blonde woman, and it is set in a white woman's world, and the diverse members seem to only be there to support. The writer of the article says that it's a reminder that true inclusivity requires more than just checking off boxes. It necessitates a fundamental reimagining of what our beloved characters can be. Now, I cannot wait to see the movie for myself and form my own opinions on it all, but I'm glad that I did a little bit of reading about it before I got to theaters. But for those of you who have seen the movie, what did you think of it? And also, what was your experience with Barbie growing up? 
I really, really, really want to know and add that to next week's episode. So please DM me on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist or email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com with any of your Barbie-related questions or comments or whatever. I want to hear it all. And just one more reminder that if you want to give me a little bit of extra love and support and also get some more content, you can join me on Patreon for the Angry Feminist Book Club at the $5 level, or you can join the Feminist Faves level for $8 a month. Another amazing way that you can support me and the show is by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show and also rating me on Spotify or wherever else you listen. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Thanks for waiting an extra day to get it. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. What's up, everyone? It's Noah Daniels. Hey, y'all. I'm JJ. Hey, guys. It's Kat. And we're your hosts of the Real Hauntings Podcast. We bring on guests who share their firsthand encounter ghost stories and supernatural experiences. Now on to the trailer. I've been warned to not tell this story, but I think because of the way it ends, it's okay to tell this story. Because some people say that with certain entities, to like speak of them or talk about them or in any way like portray them as powerful will attract them to other people. The creepiest thing about it to me is a lot of times it would wait for me to notice it. Like, it would just lay its arm out like this, and then I'd be like, where is it, where is it? And then I'd see it, and then it would just slither back. For more information on the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast, make sure you check out real.fm to learn more about our podcast and many other amazing podcasts.